When I was very young, and the urge to be someplace else was on me, I was assured by mature people that maturity would cure this itch. When years described me as mature, the remedy prescribed was middle age. In middle age, I was assured that greater age would calm my fever. And now that I am 58, perhaps senility will do the job. Nothing has worked. Four hoarse blasts of a ship's whistle still raise the hair on my neck and set my feet to tapping. The sound of a jet, an engine warming up. Even the clopping of shod hooves on pavement brings on the ancient shudder. The dry mouth and the vacant eye, the hot palms and the churn of stomach high up under the ribcage. In other words, I don't improve. In further words, once a bum, always a bum. I fear the disease is incurable. I set this matter down not to instruct others, but to inform myself. Hello and welcome to Raise a Glass, the podcast where we discuss stories and storytellers that have shaped us. I am very, very excited to be sharing Travels with Charlie in Search of America by John Steinbeck. That was the first paragraph in which he introduces how he is a perennial bum and how this book came came about. Uh, That's a word we don't use anymore. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) true. We're going to bring it back. Uh, But before we do, uh, I have to know what is in Eric's glass. Well, yeah, thanks, Hunter. My name is Eric Lintola. Yes, and I'm Hunter Danson. (laughs) I chose my glass today. Uh, It's a drink I've never consumed before, but I felt like it was a very um, reminiscent of some of the drinks that were drank drinks that were drank um, throughout the uh, travels of Charlie. I have uh, some cognac that we've had for a while. Ooh, yeah. I have never consumed cognac. I'm about to take wow. a sip to That's see what exciting. it's like. At least I don't think I have. I don't know. We got an open bottle that I think from my parents years ago. Mm. It kind of smells like whiskey. Is it just a different type of whiskey? I have never had cognac. It tastes like a type of whiskey. Um, so... But it's it's not bad. It's smooth. It's mm. got some heat. Um, but not only do I have something in my glass, but today I also have something on my plate. Oh, um, oh, wow! Uh, my mother made a, a cake for my birthday, and that's uh, the cake I grew up eating. So yeah, I will be eating that throughout this happy uh, conversation as well. Oh, thank you. I have uh, the last of my bourbon. I was saving bourbon for saving it for a special occasion and uh steinbeck is a special occasion for me uh so can I wonderful this is a part of the show where we watch each other drink the first sip of our yeah. glasses um or the first sip on the episode it's really i'm sure it'll really impact uh those who can't see yeah I'm also having it neat, uh, which I believe is appropriate for. Mm -hmm. Um, Hunter, uh, is there anything you're raising a glass or pouring one out for? Yeah, I am uh, raising a glass to Todd the Magician, who 
uh, did a show at the, our local library. Okay. Uh, apparently, he's like done shows at Disney and stuff, but he was at our library. It was a free show. Um, there were not that many people there, uh, and there were very little kids. But Todd gave it his best, uh, and he did a great job. I love magic, um, especially like sleight of hand. I just think it's it's wonderful. Um, and he, you know, despite playing kind of a small crowd and uh, pretty <laughs> shy kids, <laughs> um, he he did a good job, and he did put on a good performance. That's awesome. Bringing positive things to the name Todd. I just watched an episode of the Community community uh third season there's a character named todd who oh. the, the group just hates on for no other reason than he's just an additional person yeah even though he's like the, the really genuinely kind guy with who served in the military and they, they just i like, keep learning about him um yeah but always good to hear about a, uh, a todd that's that's at work yeah todd the <laughs> magician todd the magician nice anything you're pouring out one for uh, I'm I'm pouring one out for uh, wipe containers. Mm. Despite the fact that we've put a man on a moon on the moon, and the fact that um, SpaceX has designed rockets that can land themselves, we have still not designed a wipe container that actually works. Uh, whenever That's I go, to, when I'm changing my son's diapers, I go to take wipes it doesn't matter where it's from doesn't matter how expensive or cheap they are (laughs) i always get like two at a time Mm -hmm. or or you can't get it out and you have to like oh yeah shake it because you only have one hand you're changing poop and they just don't work none of them work (laughs) it's do you know they have wipe warmers did you have one of those yeah yeah we tried it but you know you have to like, where do you get the extra wipes? You can buy them from them, but they're much more expensive. Mm. We are just putting the Aldi wipes in the container, but they didn't quite work with it. And like, you know, because you would take one out, but then they wouldn't stay out. They would just fall back in. So then you would have to reach your finger in and like grab it again. Mm. Yeah. Pouring one out. Well, that's frustrating. Yeah, I get that. Um, <laughs> How about you? I was doing that today, actually. Uh, yeah, I am raising a glass to the largest bookstore, uh, I think specifically used bookstore, in the United States. Um, I got a chance to be in Portland oh. last week, and I visited Powell's. Um, Powell's is, it's uh, uh, there's like two sets of locations. There's some in Portland, and there's one at the University of Chicago. And got a chance to go to the one in Portland. It's two stories of used books, pretty much. Um, or at least, the very least, discounted books. Yeah. And Hunter, it was so much fun. I only got to spend a half hour in there because of a conference I was at. Um, but I was just, like, wandering around. <laughs> I got, yeah, I took a picture of myself oh, yeah. in front of Robert Jordan's section, um, which not only had a bunch of the Wheel of Time books, which is what I was expecting, but I discovered... Two trilogies and an independent book that were also written by Robert Jordan. Wow. That I didn't know existed. 
Um, one of them's um, one of the trilogies mm-hmm. on Conan is about Conan the Barbarian, yeah. which I guess is somewhat well known. Um, huh. And I guess his his writing of it is pretty good. Um, one is was po- it was um, published posthumously uh, in 2019, um, but he had written in 1975 and had sold the rights to it twice, but now it was finally printed. Mm. Um, and then the other one is a trilogy or three books. I don't know if that's like directly a trilogy, but three books about the American Revolution. And I don't know if they're fiction or fantasy or what. Interesting. Um, but the, the most interesting part about it. So Robert Jordan's real name is not Robert Jordan. I can yet never remember what it is. <laughs> but um, this series, he didn't write under the name Robert Jordan. I'm just going to grab it real quick. It says Robert Jordan writing as Reagan O'Neill. Reagan so, O'Neill. Yeah. So he, this is a book um, that is what ghost authored by a ghost. You know, pen, <laughs> there's a pen name for a pen name. Really. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also was able to get um, Fool's Crow. And nice. The, the Indian Lawyer, both by James Oh, nice. Welch. Yeah. I don't have um, the Indian lawyer yet. And uh, Fool's Crow is six ninety five, So just an yep. idea of kind of the costs. Uh, so yeah. we're definitely raising a glass of Powell's. It was awesome. Brought mm. a couple of coworkers with me. Uh, yeah. Got some great pictures. Uh, had a blast. You could just walk around there forever. Yeah. Um, and then I am pouring one out for red eye flights. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I theoretically knew what a red eye was. I don't think I've ever been on one, um, but I arrived back in my my hometown after after taking one, and not only were my eyes actually red, but it was a tough transition that I'm still feeling a few days later. Yeah, um, there's a time difference, of course, as well. But oof, so that's what I'm pouring it out for. Yeah, are you jet lagged right now? I have no idea. I'm just tired. I, uh, I really, at this point, I don't know. Maybe. Um. <laughs> well, before we uh, jump into Travels with Charlie, I wanted to make a correction. Uh, the Poe Taster comes on Poe's birthday, not the anniversary of his death every year. Raises a glass of cognac on Poe's birthday. Um, so do you want to give us a introduction? Yeah, I actually to- wanted to, to add something as well. Um, okay. a couple of weeks ago we were talking about James Welch. Um, and, um, I was just reminded this past, um, week at a conference about the importance of, of kind of sharing the, the whose land you're on um that we are still newcomers to this land mm. um even if our families have been here for hundreds of years because before that there were people that were here for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years um and i know it's kind of weird to do this a few weeks after afterwards um but i just wanted to make a statement that uh i'm currently on the uh Onown Dowaga 
land, uh, the people of the Great Hill. Um, so, of which that's made up of the uh, Seneca, Cayuga, Onondaga, Oneida, uh, Mohawk, Tuscarora people. Mm. So, I just wanted to to make that known um, in realizing, um, especially in the work I do professionally, we talk about newcomers pretty often. Um, and to realize that we are also newcomers to this land and the importance of that. And I'm, I'm thinking in future episodes, we might talk more about a little bit of that, um, even though like, to the degree that to which I feel like we can. Um, I know that mm-hmm. even based off who we are and our background and our stories and our fields of expertise, maybe we shouldn't dive too deeply into some of these issues because we might very quickly get past our um, past what we can speak about um, well or even okay. <laughs> uh, and I don't want to, yeah. Um, but I just wanted to make that known. So, yeah, uh, I am, I'm the land inhabited by the Mohegan people. They're an Algonquin Native American tribe. Um, I didn't do too much beyond that, but yeah. And that's something we can always learn about as we're learning more about our history. And we even talked about that in that episode on fool's crow. If you haven't listened to it, I think that's actually probably one of our better episodes. Um, as far as, I mean, talking about the material and the material itself. Um, and so thank you for letting, I, I really just wanted, we just wanted to make sure we, we shared that and, Again, there's probably much more that we can and should share, but um, hopefully that's a step. Yeah. Well, uh, Travels with Charlie in Search of America is connected because it is a book about America um, in which Steinbeck goes to rediscover the America that he who is the America? What is the heart yes. of America? Yeah. Do you want to? Yeah. Let me share you share a little bit about it. Um, there are so many like side plots within the story because it's that's what it's made of. It's a travel log. So he's meeting people, and so every kind of interaction in in, in one essence is a side plot. But uh, travels with Charlie in search of America is an actual travel log of John Steinbeck in 1960. Um, I'm pretty sure that's the exact year where him and his dog, Charlie, uh, who is a French poodle. And it matters that the poodle is French. Uh, get he, John Steinbeck buys a truck, um, has it outfitted um, with a, a, a camper at a very early time in that, in that kind of development. I mean, 60 years ago, and we're mm-hmm. still using those types of things today. Um, and this is very late in his career, so people know him. Um, but him and his dog, Charlie, go on a three-month, three- or six-month trip across America, starting in Long Island, up to Maine, out west, um, like through Pennsylvania, um, to the Dakotas and Wisconsin, um, all the way to California. He gets to California. They go yeah. south to Texas. He heads to the deep south, and then he heads back up um, to the north and back home. Uh, and in this story, he is in search for who America is. 
Um, it's been as an American author, he shared that it had been 25 years since he'd felt the heart beat of America. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more <laughs> in um, Quixotean fashion. He mounts um, Rosinante, <laughs> which he names is the name of his truck. Yeah. Um, and makes, goes out of his way to have conversations with people throughout the country in the midst of a very intense political time period and a very um, uh, telling social time period in America. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you said you'd read this before. When was your first encounter with uh, the stately French poodle, Charlie? Yeah, so Hunter, uh, my answer to that is directly based off you because you recommended it to me. <laughs> okay. Um, and actually, I was just looking at the exact date that I'd finished it the first time. March 8th, 2021. All right. So a year and a half ago was the first time I read this. Um, why don't you tell me how you got in, uh, introduced to this? And then I'll share with you my introduction to Steinbeck. Because... <laughs> uh, okay. uh, we're coming at different spaces here. So, uh, I read this shortly after um, coming back uh, across America, actually, um, when we were coming back from Idaho. Um, and my first introduction was the audiobook uh, narrated by Gary Sinise. Um, he does actually an excellent job. He works quite well as a Steinbeck narrator. Definitely. And I, I just loved it. I, I, I knew Steinbeck from Grapes of Wrath and of Mice and Men, uh, which are both kind of the heavy Steinbeck, uh, books, um, I did not know Steinbeck was so sarcastic uh, and so hilarious. I was laughing the whole way through. Um, and I think it, it also helped that I, in, in some very like strange coincidence, my journey kind of had some similarities to his, uh, our road trip. Um, we went to similar places. I had just been to a lot mm. of the places he was talking about. Um, I had kind of a, a interaction with the customs, um, oh my goodness. Canadian yeah. and American customs. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and I had very similar feelings, uh, that he had, um, in reaction to that. Uh, so it was, it was just like, I felt like this book was written for me. Um, and it's always, always amazing. It's always great when you find one of those books. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so, Hunter, you brought up um, two books, both of which I had read in high school. Uh, just a quick question. Have you ever read East of Eden? Yes. Okay, great. Um, so maybe you can talk a little bit about that. I have not read East of Eden. So I grew up in high school reading of Mice and Men, Mice and, Men and Grapes of Wrath. And... Neither of reading, really neither of those books 
Neither of those books made me want to read more Steinbeck. <laughs> I did not like them at all. Mm-hmm. Not like you said, how kind of how dark they get. I had to read, got to read, had to read uh, Grapes of Wrath prior to like my junior year of high school in the summer. And I have never read a book that put me to sleep as quickly <laughs> as Grapes of Wrath. Um, like every time I tried reading it, I fell back asleep. I'd wake up at like, and like, you know, 10, 11 a.m. on like a Tuesday in the summer, I'd start reading and fall asleep. <laughs> uh, like within minutes. I, I've never had that experience with a, um, another book. Um, and, and so I was a little bit hesitant when you encouraged me to read Steinbeck. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it about, well, well, first of all, was that your experience with those books or? Uh, I, I don't think they should make high schoolers read Grapes of Wrath because I don't know. I personally, if I had read Grapes of Wrath in high school, I probably wouldn't have appreciated it. I read Grapes of Wrath, I think, after I graduated college. Um, and I think it is a book that you should read, um, that most Americans should read. Uh, and it's one that I think about a lot, but it is heavy. Like It's about the Depression. Yeah, it's, it's about, about a family heading west during the Great Depression and yeah. getting no, nowhere. Getting yeah. somewhere and yet nowhere. And it's it's grappling with what has happened to, you know, the common people in the midst of this uh, crisis. Um, and I have found with Steinbeck that he either wants to punch you in the gut or he wants you to have a really, really good time. And he does both of those in this book. Yeah, he does. Um, and and usually, you know, he wants to punch you in the gut for a good reason, usually. Like, you read it and you're like, ow. And then you think about it later and it's like, okay, yeah. Um, but I would, I love, uh, I loved East is Eden. It is so much fun. I, like, couldn't put it down. Um, and it has just, it has a beautiful ending. Um, it is kind of like a family saga, but it is also a retelling of Cain and Abel um, and Mm. exploring the nature of our sin. And Mm. um, to read that. Yeah, it's, it's great. Uh, And it's, and it's a great time. And then Cannery Row, which is probably my favorite is just an absolute celebration of like the, culture and the people who are living on cannery row uh and it kind of culminates in this really big party um and there's a lot of really fun characters and it's just the whole it's it's short it's beautiful the chapters are short and beautiful it's like if you want to have a good time with steinbeck i highly recommend cannery row or you know travels with charlie honestly um so you're here to hear for for, it here first folks uh what later seasons of this podcast uh we will be discussing <laughs> i'm sure you know yeah. east of eden at the very least will make oh, that yeah. to our list um and that's what i w- wanted to say um 
travels with Charlie does not feel at all like grapes of wrath or mice and men. Um, it feels like a person asking hard questions and thinking through things kind of deeply after having real life conversations with people from across our country at a very specific time. And at no point does he say, this is what all Americans think, or this is, um, so, so even if you're not about John Steinbeck, um, this is a very different type of feel. And, and a lot of it holds. Um, it's not the type of, to me, even reading it a second time, it, it, it's not the type of travel log that I listened to. And I was like, Ooh, you can't say that anymore. Um, or at least not regularly. Uh, I said that maybe a couple times, but that was also in relation to what was happening in the United States where he was when he was there. Mm-hmm. So that's probably way too long of a preamble. Um, but let's dive into it. Hunter, I know there are some, some um, quotes and moments that really kind of stuck out to you. I'd love for you to share um, you know, maybe share one of them and, and we can kind of talk about them as we go through. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I'd read this book twice already. And at this week I sat down and I was like, I wrote down a few quotes that I remembered and I was like, okay, I'm going to look these up. And then I just ended up reading the whole book again. Um, <laughs> Cause it just, it's it just keeps going. Steinbeck is a really he's really good at pacing and you know, once you start a paragraph, you gotta finish that paragraph and you wanna read the next one. That's true. Um I love his prose. Um but anyway. I think the one that I probably quote the most uh has to do with writing, no surprise. Um, what, what? But it's about English and he is traveling at this point. I think he, he gets, he finally gets on the throughway. He tries to enjoy it, avoid it for a while um, and take the back mm. roads and stuff because he wants to see the country. He doesn't want to see just a road. And he is stopping in all these diners and they have powdered eggs and coffee and stuff. Um, and he talks about how the vernacular is disappearing in America because of radio and television. The kind of local vernacular that people mm. use, accents um, are kind of going away. And I'll just read the paragraph. Um, One of my purposes was to listen, to hear speech, accent, speech rhythms, overtones, and emphasis. For speech is so much more than words and sentences. I did listen everywhere. It seems to me that regional speech is in the process of disappearing, not gone but going. Forty years of radio and twenty years of television must have this impact. Communications must destroy localness by a slow, inevitable process. I can remember a time when I could almost pinpoint a man's place of origin by his speech. Mm. That is growing difficult. 
now and will in some that is growing more difficult now and will in some foreseeable future become impossible. It is a rare house or building that is not rigged with spiky combers of the air. Radio and television speech become standardized, perhaps better English than we have ever used, just as our bread, mixed and baked, packaged and sold without benefit of accident or human frailty, is uniformly good and uniformly tasteless, so will our speech become one speech. And it's those last two sentences that I come back to uh, because I I love sentences. I love the English language. It is a flexible uh, hodgepodge of a language that is somehow beautiful and stately and vulgar all at the same time. Uh, Fiona's concurring right now she's on the left um <laughs> Fiona can't hear it <laughs> she feels it okay but uh i use a when i do proofreading i use a i use a tool called language tool which is basically it's kind of like grammarly um and you know just because especially since i don't really have an editor to do copy editing, you know, it helps catch some of those typos that a normal spell checker doesn't catch. And it enforces things like certain commas, certain spellings of words. Um, mm. And it is good to have a uniform and an ideal. And I, I would say like, if you're learning how to write, it's probably a good idea to stick to the rules, but my favorite writers don't. Um, Steinbeck doesn't, he, he knows good writers know when to break the rules. And I think that especially in our internet culture, it is a lot easier to say this author is bad because this sentence isn't grammatically correct and point fingers at Mm -hmm. it. But I would hazard to guess that many of my favorite sentences and many of the most powerful sentences are not grammatically correct. Um, I mean, load up a document and my, my uncle who is, who is writing as well, uh, did this. He, he put in a bunch of his favorite authors into a word doc, like copy and pasted some of their stuff. And he found like, you know, hundreds of errors in the spell check. (laughs) Um, so, you know, it's, I think it's really easy nowadays to forget that language is one of the hallmarks of being human and language is flexible and it changes and, you know, I think Steinbeck pinpointed that. Here's something that I wasn't able to do because I've listened to it through on Audible twice and haven't looked at it. Does he write the wording of people with different accents differently in this book? Um, Or no? Yes and no. Mostly he doesn't. He doesn't really do like what Mark Twain does, I think. 
Um, yeah. And, and that kind to of do spelling. It, as it sounds. Yeah. Yeah. But the, you know, there is a section where he explains his wife's accent and like he does kind of the Texas, mm-hmm. you know, he says sometimes that, uh, I forget. He, he has like one exchange where they were visiting someone in his, his wife or his, I think one of his Texas relations asks for a, a pin and yep, they're yep. like, Oh, do you want a straight pin or a different kind of pin? And they're like, no, I want an ink pin. Um, and he writes it pin, you know? Okay. Uh, but you know, it's yeah. Okay. So it's now been 60 years since this book is written or written. We have 60 more years of TV, radio, social media, YouTube, YouTube. What do you think? I, I, are there less accents now? Um, you can probably hear my accent as I say that word. Uh, <laughs> doesn't come out too often, but I think they're much more subtle. I mean, I, I am not a linguist by any means. Uh, so I can't speak with any kind of scientific authority, but when I think about how English has become kind of the international language, um, there is definitely kind of a standard English, you know, and it's maybe I'm kind of based, but I'm pretty sure it's American. Like, sorry, what was that word you just said? Maybe you're kind of biased. What was that? Biased. <laughs> biased. 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 <laughs> but see, that's not an accent thing. That's just a mispronunciation. Sure. I mean, I was feeling that when I was reading Poe last week. I was like, is it an Nepenthe or an Nepenthe? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I'm sorry. I I would, my educated shot in the dark is that there's a lot less variety. The differences are a lot more subtle. Yeah. I mean, I would probably in the same way. Um, I think one of the, maybe a bigger question that was guiding my asking that is that we get the chance when we're reading this and other books to ask the questions, are these theories and theses accurate? <laughs> right. We're reading this book 60 years, 62 years uh, after the event and it happened. And I found myself at multiple times asking questions of, okay, like I found myself relating to it. Cause I was like, yeah, that's like speaking into our moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I like, that was a time of a major political um, campaign. And one of the things he was noticing um, was that there were, people weren't talking about it uh, publicly. Yeah. But that everybody was highly opinionated and must be having those conversations privately. Yeah. And it's kind of asking questions about that to different people and in the conversations. And I was thinking about, How at this particular moment, 
there are many people in their workspace uh, and in day-to-day life that actively choose not to share their political points, but are like vehemently for or against things. Um, but there's also much more public outcry. So like, I felt like part of what he was saying was like true to the moment and also like not true. He has a whole piece where he talks about going to have uh, conversations with his sisters, sisters yeah, um, in, in Texas and his political viewpoints have changed and he wasn't arguing to change in California, California, I'm um, sorry, California. Yeah. And they're both Republicans and he's a Democrat at this point. And he said, it was pretty much saying like they couldn't have a conversation without (laughs) it becoming political and them fighting. And I think there's a lot of, I think that's still true in many families. And I know at times it's true in my family. Yeah. There are certain subjects that I think a lot of us try to avoid. No, I and like, we like to think that these are new things, right? We're, and, <laughs> yeah. But they're not, they're not like, we're, we're not new to these things. And he actually talks about that again. So here's the thing. I'm, I'm thinking about this book. I was really frustrated because I didn't, I was trying to get the physical copy of it to have it in front of me. And I didn't, um, I want to bring up, um, and I'm sure you'll find the quote of it. You might already have it highlighted or whatever. <laughs> there is a point somewhat early on in the book where he talks about the rapid change of the world now um how in the first you know it took you know some absurd amount of time i have no idea how many zeros to add um for you know lightning to turn into fire that people could carry around with them Mm -hmm. and then how you know how long between that fire to the industrial revolution and then from the industrial revolution to now and how things are happening and we're moving, progressing forward so much faster than we have time to think. Um, and he talks about the importance. He's like, maybe that it's important um, that we have time to be like, slow down and think about a thing. Um, yeah. But like, I think that's so like I I hear heard that and I've been like separately thinking that um pretty pretty recently like, like things move so quickly and yet when we don't take time to like we've lost the ability in many ways to slow down and breathe mm-hmm. and to kind of reset ourselves and how that's part of like growth. I wouldn't say we've lost the ability. I'd say we've lost the discipline <laughs> maybe um With opportunity opportunity yeah i mean because because you can make the opportunity if if you really try but we're not encouraged to our attention is uh a very coveted resource these days mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about the time when like, and, and maybe it's still happening in parts of our country where people sit on their front porch drinking coffee or whatever at the end of a day. Yeah. And just sit and, and rock. Yeah. You know, I learned to 
let go and learn to love raking leaves <laughs> and mowing the lawn because mm. I, I I get annoyed about mowing the lawn because <laughs> I think about the philosophy of mowing the lawn and how <laughs> futile it is um, and just the ridiculousness of getting on this huge gasoline-powered machine <laughs> Just to cut grass. Like, you know, maybe the only practical reason is like, maybe I want to have a game of catch in my yard. Uh, Like, you know, maintain appearances. That seems to be the biggest reason. Um, I heard this. I don't know. I don't remember where I heard this. Maybe I should fact test myself. But it is one of my favorite possibly true facts, which is that uh, the practice of mowing lawns was um, inherited from French aristocracies mm. in which they would, you know, mow the lawns at their estates. And that would be a sign of uh, grooming and wealth. And I just think about how we, how we mow our lawns and it's a waste. It's a, it's a waste of time, but you know, at the same point, it's a time when I just slow down, just think and, uh, you know, listen to something just like, I, I don't have a choice. I have to sit there. But here's the next challenge is, can you do it without listening to something? Cause I find that challenge <laughs> like to do it with just your own thoughts. Yeah, that's tough. I could rake leaves with just my own thoughts, but yeah, mowing the lawn is, is harder. I think this is one of the, one of the reasons, and, and he, John Seidenbeck talks about this a little bit um, in the beginning, like probably the primary primary reason that he brought Charlie with him hmm. is to have somebody to talk to. And for me, Charlie is one of the most interesting characters in this whole story. He's one of the few characters that throughout it, but he is solely unique uh, <laughs> as a dog. He's huge. He is uh, has a blue gray face and is a poodle, um, and uh, especially in the deep south, uh, very interesting things happen. Yes, um, interesting. I thought you had a yeah something in there. Um, and and throughout this uh, this narrative, uh, Charlie talks with John, <laughs> John, it's with Mister Steinbeck. I don't know. Um, by uh, making a sound that few other, if any, dogs can make. He goes, Yeah. And Sidebeck says, He's the only dog I've ever met who could make the sound. The F sound. It's because he's got crooked teeth that uh, push into his bottom lip. Mm -hmm. Um, And he uses Charlie as a way to build relationships. Yeah. Um, He like purposely let Charlie go to the close by people and then follow him up like 15 to 30 minutes later to yeah. quote unquote, retrieve his dog um, who is a big barker, but really unless there's a bear around, isn't going to do anything else. <laughs> and, and Hunter, I, I got to, I heard a story about Charlie from um, Tom Steinbeck. Oh, okay. Uh, John Steinbeck's dad, uh, son, you ready for this? Okay. So, uh, we learned in the story that um, 
Charlie really doesn't like the sounds of of guns at all. He's a big scary, 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 scary cat, scary dog. Um, and and so Tom Steinbeck, after his brother, his father's death, was sharing that um, his dad loved gardening. And he was mm. a terrible gardener, um, but he also. Uh, like he was like, we we're feeding all the all the animals and miles around. They just come because we had a vegetable garden that my dad was trying to do, and he was just <laughs> giving them free vegetables. All the rabbits and squirrels and whatever. And so it comes to this point where they were, and he said, you know, sixty five bunnies in their backyard <laughs> on Long Island. Um, and John Steinbeck, who does not like guns and makes his views of violence. And and war pretty clear throughout mm-hmm. this book, and talks a little bit about his experience um, fighting in World War II. Not a lot, but he touches on it. Um, he uh, Tom was saying that his dad said we are going to uh, <laughs> do what needs to be done and remove these <laughs> these these uh, bunnies. <laughs> and so they had uh, they all had guns. And so they had what was called the, they called uh, the Battle of the Bluff. <laughs> and um, I pretty much massacred a bunch of bunnies. Um, and afterwards, they couldn't find Charlie. Oh. And he said it, it was pretty regular for Charlie to disappear for maybe a day. Um, you know, go for a walk with another dog, whatever. Mm. It was starting to get two days and then three days looking around. They couldn't find Charlie. So on the fourth day, Tom, this is, John John Steinbeck's son was walking down to the water and he just happened to glance in the small clearing and he sees Charlie. And he starts walking towards Charlie and he said for the very first time in his life, Charlie growled and like snarled at him. Like, if you get any closer, I'm going to bite you. Mm. Um, Tom brought some food, eventually was able to kind of rebuild the relationship. And then John Steinbeck <laughs> talks about this at one point in Travels with Charlie, like having to rebuild his relationship with Charlie after um, bringing Charlie to be groomed while he was in Chicago. Yeah. Um, and it took a while. Um, but like Charlie very much, like he's very much anthropomorphized, um, you know, very much human emotions and, and feelings. Yeah. Um, it eventually lets him back in. And so it turns out that Charlie was sitting in the middle of this field on a bunny nest with a bunch of baby bunnies inside. Oh, wow. Which is like heartbreaking, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> no. And he said that after that moment, Charlie never treated them the same way again. <laughs> and he was talking about the challenge of being... Um, he said, he's like, it's, it's, you know, somewhat co- common for, you know, ad- you know, people to be ashamed in their dogs for where they, you know, where they salute <laughs> or whatever it might be. It's like, Charlie is a French, French dog, like, was ashamed of us. <laughs> like, and it wasn't because of what we looked like. He was ashamed of us for our, mo- for moral reasons. Like, <laughs> imagine the challenge of being, Having a your dog morally ashamed of you. <laughs> they should. I think that's such a good. I, honestly, I think that that does such a good job of of kind of sharing who Charlie is in this story. Yeah. 
Um, that's Charlie. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. That's that sounds just like Charlie. I also love how Charlie wakes up John Steinbeck. <laughs> he just stares at him when he's sleeping. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Steinbeck will try to like pretend that he's still asleep and not acknowledge him. And then Charlie will just go. It just keeps staring at him <laughs> until he wakes up. And this is why you have to read this book. This is yeah. it's it's full of these types of anecdotes. And he goes from a, a an amusing and then funny anecdote to like talking about like deep things in life. Um and he's able to do that, I think partially because of the type of author that Steinbeck is. And he shares that he can't write hot. Yeah. Like he doesn't he's not an author who takes notes. And he can't write like when the thing happened or right afterwards. Yeah. He needs time to let the ideas ferment. He's like a pickle um, or a good set of kimchi. Um, you know, he needs time for it to ripen. He needs time for it to ferment. He needs time for it to brine. Uh, and then yeah. he delivers a dish that has that complexity of flavor and is able to bring um, kind of the surface level, what's happening together with the the inner and deeper level of like, where like what questions are being asked um mm-hmm. that are causing these actions um which i think is a certain degree to uh what our goal is in this podcast and sometimes yeah. we succeed sometimes we don't <laughs> we're still um, learning a recipe mm-hmm. almost always we have fun though yeah <clears throat> usually tastes good mm-hmm. yeah. hunter what tell me about talk to me about rosinante Rosinante, uh, Rosinante is this truck that Steinbeck kind of like sends away to a company for, uh, they give him his specifications and, um, send him this truck built with kind of like a camper on the back. It's kind of like a pop-up camper, I guess. It's the way I envision it. It has a cab in the back and, uh, the driving cab in the front. And it's a really trusty vehicle. Unlike the Rosinante and Don Quixote, it is a very sturdy uh, steed. <laughs> um, and it doesn't really fail him. Except for one, there's this one section where, and this is what I'm talking about when I say it. it I had a very like uncannily similar experiences to Steinbeck. Is He's driving in Oregon on this kind of dirt road and it's kind of muddy and raining and he gets flat um because he didn't he forgot to put heavy duty tires on the truck because he's carrying so much weight um and it wasn't really designed the tires weren't designed to carry that kind of weight and one of them blows out and he sees a bubble you know where it's blown out and then there's a bubble in one of his front tires too so he has to change this flat in the mud and i was my wife and I were visiting Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. We were camping and we decided to go for a drive to the other side of the lake. And we went through the National Forest roads and no service or anything. And I mean, this is not like coming back on a trip or anything, but, you know, we were camping and 
I, we got a flat on these mm. dirt roads <clears throat> and it started raining. <laughs> so I had to go out and change the flat in the mud. And, uh, we had just had our tires rotated and I'm pretty sure they used a electric drill to put the bolts on. So oh, it was no. incredibly <laughs> tight. Um, but you know, we, we survived. I'm still here. So we didn't starve in the forests of Portland, but, uh, it's really great when you have a moment like that with the book, but Rosinante, um, he changed the flat and he's, he's, he says he compares Rosinante to like a faithful wife, um, or like a, um, I forget what the other, like a good employee or something. People who are, who do a really good job and, um, because they do a really good job and they're so loyal and so trustworthy, mm no one recognizes them and yeah. no one gives them any praise. And that's his relationship with Rosanante because Rosanante just does a really, really good job. Um, except for this one moment, which isn't really Rosanante's fault. Um, mm. and so eventually he gets to this old one eyed guy who turns out to be like a saint, even though he looks like a demon. Uh, the, the guy like, story. it's just, like, that, uh, yeah. that is one of those interactions that kind of defines the book. Yeah. It's just a small, out of the way interaction, and uh, he's able to lift up and and speak to the depth of a character. Yeah, yeah, it's love it. There is a quote hunter in this book that I am sure is on your list. Okay, um, it's one. Of, he says at some point he he's in talking with people throughout America. He, he's realized uh, there's this longing that people have to, to, to go with him mm-hmm. from the very beginning, this boy that wants to go with him, that can't to everywhere he goes, he meets people who want to be anywhere, but, or, but every here, he, he says it's, yeah. that wasn't the specific language. I don't, I don't know if you can find the quote, um, but that's like a guiding theme. At that point, and it's a theme that I think became really clear during COVID, mm-hmm. um, when people were going out buying trailer, trailer, and you know campers and RVs to go on the trips that they never got to. It talks about this longing that people keep having. People want to stop and and look at uh, walk through Rosinante, and I just say. Ah oh, man, and he like asked him. He's like, "Oh, we, you know, where do you want to go?" And he's like, "Like, oh, anywhere." Like, go. Oh, do you not like life here? Like, no, no, I like life. You know, it's fine. He only meets, I think, one person on the way. Um, who is the dairy man? Who he said must have had a a doctorate in mathematics and a master's in philosophy, and yet was the only person who really seemed to love where they were uh which which yeah. i just love that that little passing <laughs> moment yeah D- does something stick out to you from that or is anything you want to add to that yeah um i mean he zeroes in on the american identity and i think you would hate the, that phrase that i just used zeroes in um because 
he takes great care to explain that this is what he saw and um he says if if other americans reading this account should feel it true that agreement would only mean that we are alike in our americanness and if there is anything i think that is american it is that desire to move and to be somewhere else and i think that is true um i guess as as a nation you know um the people that came to to found a nation here and be part of the nation and live here were the people who were not satisfied um with where they were or could not live where they were for many different reasons and there's one other thing i wanted to mention in what one of the reasons that i love steinbeck so much is that he knows what he is um and he despite his success he doesn't really have any pre- pretensions about what he does his his personal um sigil is a pegasus which is a pig with wings um and a pegasus the, not a pegasus yes um <laughs> a pegasus yes and his motto the latin motto is ad astra per alia porky which is to the stars on the wings of a pig what a a, a pretentious way to not be pretentious yeah give and yourself your own uh you know, well he's, a, he's an incredibly sarcastic man um <laughs> But he says, I've always admired those reporters who can descend on an area, talk to key people, ask key questions, take samplings of opinions, and then set down an orderly report, very like a roadmap. I envy this technique, and at the same time, do not trust it as a mirror of reality. I feel that there are too many realities. What I set down here is true until someone else passes that way and rearranges the world in his own style. In literary criticism, the critic has no choice but to make over the victim of his attention into something the size and shape of himself. (laughs) Sounds like the quest for the historical Jesus, that last bit there. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Got a lot of thoughts on that. Yeah. (laughs) I I was also thinking about your... uh, your article that you wrote on your hometown and oh. versus those that were written. Yeah. Like if you can't tell stomach is a big inspiration to me. Um, I mean, I, the, there are things he says, I think particularly his treatment of native Americans that I definitely disagree with um, and wish that he thought about more, but you know, I, I, I don't, I never knew him. Um, I know him by his words. And I'm not convinced that he would be a particularly pleasant person to live with. Um, But, you know, he, he, he doesn't pretend to know the truth or have high-minded ideals about like, I mean, he has ideals. He tries to find the the truth, but he doesn't have any illusions about um, 
you know, what fiction is and what the kind of writing that he does is. Um, he he's, he tries to find the truth. And, you know, we talked about it in how Tolstoy kind of like stumbles on the truth constantly. And I think that's what Steinbeck tries to do. And I, mm-hmm. I think more than Tolstoy, he, he distills it more and, and kind of cuts it down more. And he has very clear prose um, and he cuts very sharply, uh, which I really appreciate. Yeah. Uh, just thinking to what you were saying, um, he defines himself earlier on in the book and, and uh, if you want to read this quote, you can, but, um, he says, uh, let me just grab this up separately. I've always lived violently, drunk, usually eaten too much or not at all slept around the clock or missed two nights of sleeping, worked too hard and too long in glory or slobbed for a time in utter laziness. I've lifted, pulled, chopped, climbed, made love with joy and taken my hangovers as a consequence, not as a punishment. Uh, and and shortly after that and before that and around that, he talks about being a man's man or being a man and how uh, at different times in life there were, there were men who were really men. And yeah, I, <laughs> there are many parts of what he shared that I'm like, mm. uh, I don't think I would have been friends with him. Um, but your statement of him like knowing who he is and speaking from there and, and not pretending to not like to be someone else. Like I gotta believe that after his friends in Texas read this, they weren't his friends anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he goes on about them like being overly rich and stuffing themselves in an orgy of food. Yeah. Uh, and then he calls himself out. He's like, you know, when they come to us in New York City, they're like, how in the world do you, after a few days, I ask, how in the world do you live like this every day? He said, and we answer, we don't. <laughs> and when you're gone, we won't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. I just, he has just one off lines that I, I, I read. Uh, this is like the third time I've read this and I was chuckling throughout it constantly. Um, one of my favorites is when he's describing how he is saving his, his houseboat that he has on oh, a lake yeah. during a storm. And he's, you know, he has to swim out there and, and he, he needs a, he needs to cut a line. And he says for the first in my first time in my life, I had a knife in my pocket when I needed it. Uh, <laughs> just, just, uh, it's, it's so funny. Um, Here's the quote I was talking about earlier. I figure I should actually read it. Uh, I saw in their eyes something I was to see over and over in every part of the nation. A burning desire to go, to move, to get underway, any place, away from any here. They spoke quietly of how they wanted to go someday. To move about, free and unanchored. Not towards something, but away from something. I saw this look and heard this yearning everywhere in every state I visited. Nearly every American hungers to move. Hmm. Andrew, there's we can't do an appropriate retelling of this book without talking about 
his experience in the deep South. Yeah. Is there anything you want to talk about before we get there? Yeah. Um, oh, there's so many quotes. There, there's one. I have two quick things. First one is there's a section where he kind of describes what he looks like and what he wears. And to preface it, he says, um, I have found many readers more interested in what I wear than in what I think, more avid to know how I do it than in what I do. In regarding my work, some readers profess greater feeling for what it makes than for what it says. And then one more I have, which is at the top of my list, uh, is he meets a man of the profession. Um, and he's, he's kind of at a lake and kind of relaxing with Charlie. And this guy pulls up, he has a little, it's like a hatchback and like a pole trailer. And this guy comes out, they're kind of like watching each other, but not watching each other as people do. Um, and then Steinbeck kind of lets Charlie out and, the guy comes over and they, they talk and the guy says, I see that you are of the profession. And Steinbeck is like, well, actually no, but he, he knows what the term means. And the guy's a little bit confused and come to find out the guy is a thespian. And um, Steinbeck knows the term, the profession, because he um, wrote a couple plays that were some, that were flops. Uh, and I, I love the Steinbeck said in his, in his interactions with this man learns that he is retired and um, was, you know, living off the benefits or whatever, but, you know, just decided that he wanted to do something uh, and that thing was acting. And basically what the guy does, he performs at like, senior homes, uh, libraries, um, schools or churches, just like anywhere he can really do his thing. And he's kind of like a one man show and he does like a monologue of, of like Shakespeare and stuff. Um, and Steinbeck says, as the guy is explaining this, Steinbeck says, I began to love this man. And I began to love that man along with Steinbeck. Um, because it, it is just... You know, it's like Todd the Magician, you know, just yeah. um, <laughs> uh, sharing art and the beauty of Shakespeare. And the guy says, you know, some people I kind of put off at first, but then the material just kind of takes over, <clears throat> takes over. And um, at the end of it, he says... So it went on, a profession older than writing and one that will probably survive when the written word has disappeared. And all the sterile wonders of movies and television and radio will fail to wipe it out. A living man in communication with a living audience. But how did he live? Who were his companions? What was his hidden life? He was right. His exit wetted the questions. Somebody with even better timing than Steinbeck. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was a really, that is a great moment. Um, you shared three quotes. Can you reread the first one? That's something you had. Yeah. I have found many readers more interested in what I wear than in what I think, more avid to know how I do it than in what I do. In regarding my work, some readers profess greater feeling for what it makes than for what it says. Yes. I wanted to hit on that last bit. Last week, we talked about Edgar Allan Poe. Mm. His biggest focus was on what people feel. Yeah. Not what he says. Mm. How do you... What do you think of those two things? They sound to me like they're uh, very different approaches to have. Yeah. Well, he, I mean, he says greater feeling for what it makes than for what it says. Um, like the readers has greater feeling for what it makes than what it says. But I, yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, Poe, I guess by his own admission was very concerned with the effect originality and the effect and feeling. Um, And I I think Steinbeck is concerned with that too um, because he is a self-professed lover of the English language and the sounds and poetry of it. But I think he is also very concerned with the truth and, you know, finding that truth um, that is true to him um, and as he sees it. And I think mostly he succeeds. He learned how to succeed, I think, through his career, throughout his career. And um, I I don't know. I think about this in writing a lot. um, And I think maybe it's even more shoved in my face when I'm watching movies and stuff, um, is that we are often impressed by grandeur and um, pretty pictures and beautiful sounds. And, um, you know, beauty is, is an end in its own right. And I guess feeling the feeling of a reader, the effect of it falls under that kind of category, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but my favorite things, I, I, I believe that, truth is more powerful than beauty. Um, and the highest ideal, I guess, for me would to be to find a truth and present it in all of its beauty um, with all of the devices of art and poetry. Um, and I don't know, I think... I think that is what Steinbeck wanted to do. And I think that is kind of what he was getting at and that how readers, they want to know what he wears. They want to know like, you know, what, how he takes his coffee and like um, what he does every day, what his routine is or whatever and stuff like that. Um, But they're not really concerned with the actual work itself. 
And this is kind of a long tangent, I guess, but I'm just, uh, it happens when I talk about Steinbeck, thinking about how if we did not know the name of the author, and if we did not know who the director is or how much money the movie was making, we didn't have context. Would we be able to judge a piece of art um, to judge whether we really liked it or loved it? Um, because I think sometimes people, a lot of people jump on the bandwagon and, you know, I do that with certain things too, but um, it's very tempting, especially when that thing is like, you know, glowing on your screen with special effects that cost a billion dollars. Um <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, I don't know what, there's not much I can do about it except try and promote the things that I, I love and that I think are, um, capture both, capture truth with beauty. Um, and I think this, you know, Steinbeck is one of the thing, those things, Travels with Charlie. Um, yeah. Um, so this leads us to the last leg of his journey where he enters the deep South. Um, after he leaves the deep South, he tries to like continue his trip, but he hits a point at 4 PM on a day in Virginia, <laughs> something like that where his trip is over. Um, and Charlie knows it as well. And up until that point, you can remember almost every face and name and story verbatim. And after that, I can't remember a single thing. All, all up to the point where he gets lost in his own hometown, quote unquote, hometown in New York City. Uh, and I think a large part of that is because of his trip in the Deep South. Um, yes, also it's been a long trip towards the end of it. All of us kind of get to that point in the trip. Mm -hmm. But he ends up in the Deep South in the 1960s. Um, and goes out of his way. Well, two things come to me, um, my mind. Um, the first is, on the first you know, two-thirds of the trip, The uh, Charlie was a, a point of conversation because people would ask what type of dog he is and kind of talk from there. Um, and the last part of it in the Deep South, at this particular time, in his particular experiences, People look inside, and you kind of shared this earlier, and they say, um, they ask him if he has a, they use a word that we don't use and shouldn't use mm -hmm. in our culture and our society, referring to a black person. Um, and say, oh, I thought you had a, and it's, it's jarring. Uh, for me, it was very jarring when that happened, because, um, mm -hmm. That to me was one of those, oh, we're in the 1960s. But also, oh, there's a lot of similarities. Um, even though, thankfully, like, I don't know, this is to me a space of like, seeing progress, even though it's by no means the amount of progress that is desired. Because um, then he makes a decision to go see the cheerleaders, uh, is what they're called. Uh, the cheerleaders, quotation marks. Uh, which is a group of women that are every morning 
going and yelling at this little black girl and then this middle-aged white man and his kids as they go to school. Um, and it's a very specific time in, in history um, where they're going to a, a desegregation. Yeah. And he doesn't share what they say, but he, uh, this is an experience that hits him. Um, and I think it hits us. I think, I mean, it not, I think it hits us as readers as well. And then he ends up having four different conversations or so with all men um, about it, two black men and two white men afterwards. Um, Yeah. He, (laughs) this is what he says about the cheerleaders. Perhaps that is what made me sick with weary nausea. Here was no principle, good or bad, no direction. These blousy women with their little hats and their clippings hungered for attention. They wanted to be admired. They simpered in happy, almost innocent triumph when they were applauded. There was the demented cruelty of egocentric children, and somehow this made their insensate beastliness much more heartbreaking. These were not mothers, not even women. They were crazy actors playing to a crazy audience. And then uh, later on, he says, even setting this down on paper has raised the weary, hopeless nausea in me again. It is not written to amuse. It does not amuse me. Um, And this is the Steinbeck that wants to punch you in the gut. Um, mm-hmm. he, he'll write it down if he thinks it needs to be written down. He also uh, breaks character. Like part of his goal in this whole trip is to be objective. Or maybe not to be objective, to, to be a listening ear mm-hmm. more than a talking head. And he is able to do that for the entire trip, at least for what he catalogs, up until the moment where he is driving this white man who is very much on the, um, sees what the cheerleaders are doing and thinks it's almost like not enough, um, that it's all good and that they should be even going further. And saying all these things, um, to which I'm reading and I'm like, man, I would not drive this person anymore. I would. And Steinbeck stops. And it's like, what are you stopping for? He says, get out. Which like, as a reader, I applaud him for. Mm-hmm. And I also wonder if it's as a reader of, like, did he fail in his goal? Like, and at the same point, I'm like, yeah, hundred percent. Like, do you did the right thing? So, it's just kind of a, a piece I was thinking about. But he has this conversation. Hunter, do you have any of the pieces? I, I can look it up. If, yeah. Um, uh, of the conversation with the first man. Um, yeah. Uh, 
Sigit? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, he, he meets this guy who is... Um, I'm not quite, I don't know enough about New Orleans to really say what part of the culture he's from, but his family name is Sagit, uh, and he's, he's, is saddened by what is happening and going on and Steinbeck talks with him a lot. Um, in his conversation with Sagit or CG, I think is what mine was saying, um, they talk about the ends and the means. Um, and they both seem fully in agreement of where things are going is such that desegregation will be the case. Um, and that things that I think even in our own society that many people are saying, like, hey, like, we're not there yet, like, but we, we the hope that we will get there. Yeah, they're like this is will happen, but it's the means by which it happens. Yeah, um, with all the polls and opinion posts, with the newspapers more opinion than news, so that we no longer know one from the other. I want to be very clear about one thing: I have not intended to present, nor do I think I have presented any kind of cross section, so that a reader can say. He thinks he has presented a true picture of the South. I don't. I've only told what a few people said to me and what I saw. I don't know whether they were typical or whether any conclusion can be drawn, but I do know it is a troubled place and a people caught in a jam. And I know that the solution when it arrives will not be easy or simple. I feel, with Monsieur Sigit, that the end is not in question. It's the means. The dreadful uncertainty of the means. I want to problematize a little bit of what he just shared. Said because I, I agree with I, I love the heart behind it, and I, I um at the same time, um, Malcolm X and then later Martin Luther King Jr. as well were talking about the racism and segregation and Jim Crow type laws that also existed in the North. And while I don't think John Steinbeck would necessarily disagree with it, he doesn't talk at all about that in the first few legs of his trip. Um, He only talks about it right here. So I just want to make sure that we're not idealizing the northern parts of the United States, which is something I think we can often do, like how New York City has got it going and upstate New York and all these places. And I just I just want to make sure that it's very clear that that's not, at least I think that's not where either of us are coming from in this. Um, yeah, and I, I think in the context, I mean, this is a travel log. That's the format of this book. So, I mean, this section is is about the South. and. I I love Steinbeck. I he is one of my favorite authors and in terms of style I take a lot of inspiration from him and 
try to learn from him. But he is a man, and uh, you, know, you know he's not a he's no Solomon, um, <laughs> and I don't want to say I don't know he. You know, he he's not the example that we should look to when we're when we're trying to have a conversation about racial diversity and um injustice and um trying to strive for justice. Because I mean, when he's he's a white man and and that matters. Um I think if you want to learn about um racism and injustice you should go to sources that are not written by white men um or white women and in the forms of racism maybe not injustice yeah yeah (laughs) um i guess what i mean is is like you can disagree with steinbeck and i actually end up disagreeing with him in my essay uh I I started with a quote by him about uh, memory and he he says, you can't go home again, which is the final part of this. um, Well, maybe not the final part, but when he's in California, he Mm -hmm. is visiting uh, his home and the people that he once knew. That's a depressing scene. Yeah. And he ends up saying, you can't go home. Thomas Wolfe once said, you can't go home. Because home has ceased to exist except in the mothballs of memory. And, um, uh, well, I agree that you can't go home. I think that memory is more than a closet. And, Mm. you know, it's, you know, this is just one man's perspective who went, who was there at the time. And, and we don't know how embellished the account is. Um, and, and he says it himself. I, I do not intend to present, nor do I think I have presented any kind of cross-section so the reader can say he thinks he has presented a true picture of the South. And, yeah. um, you know, in that sense, you can take Steinbeck at his word in that he he doesn't think he's presented a true cross-section. He's just tried to present what he saw. And, you know, maybe I think in future episodes, we can explore more sources that are closer and um, more involved with the issue. Yeah, that's a good idea. Thank you for sharing that, Hunter. It's, It's the nature of what we've been talking about and the stories and storytellers that shape us is many of them are like near and dear to our heart and we're closer close to like idolizing them um, because of the impact they've had. Mm-hmm. And a couple of things you just shared are one, none of these people should be idolized because mm-hmm. they're still people, flawed people. Um, and two, I also heard you say that it's a, it's okay to, enjoy and learn from something and to disagree with it. 
I, I think it's really important that point, especially to be brought home to, to our kids mm-hmm. is where we don't live in a, a world where the world we live in is such that most things aren't yes or no, aren't yeah. black or white, aren't you know, this or that. You're somewhere in the middle. You're in that gray area. You're in that maybe. <laughs> and and I think we're still having that conversation of okay, can we like what at what level and at what point should we stop to like listening to a voice because what they've done is so bad or so and like it's a hard question to have. And I think we all like to think that we have the answer, even when we are realizing maybe we don't know what the answer is, but it's, it's not a yes or no answer often. Sometimes it is, but most of the time somewhere in the middle. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, one of my goals for the podcast and what we're, trying to do i think is present an alternative way of talking about art and uh storytellers and stories because so much of the popular discourse is thing good or thing bad um Mm -hmm. and that is borrowing i think Lindsay ellis put it that way once um but art is made by people and people are flawed and complex and a lot of differing emotions and things. And I think especially with movies, like (laughs) we look at the cinema sins and ding off a bunch of things on a checklist. Um, But that's not the nature of art. And, um, my approach to reading and um, approaching art and books has changed from uh, trying to evaluate something as a product um, and trying to read it, uh, evolve from that into approaching it like I would trying to have a a relationship with someone or make a new friend or Hmm. like when I read a book, I, I subconsciously, uh, you know, feel like I'm kind of getting to know the author, um, (laughs) getting to know a person and, um, you know, just cause that's, that's especially the nature of writing. Um, I think more than, any other medium I think writing is, is a meeting of the minds um, as Tolkien once said. And yeah, there's, you know, plot is important. It's not like it's not important, you know, but like there's so much more beyond that. And um, I think Steinbeck was very aware of it and that's, that's why I like him a lot. Um, And I, I hope that we can, 
find a way to, to talk about art and and uh, find meaningful things from it uh, yeah. beyond uh, memes and uh, dissing on it and mm-hmm. funny YouTube videos and honest trailers. Mm-hmm. I don't know. They don't tell the full story, even when they're fun. Yeah. yeah. I hope that we could master the exit as the man of the profession did. And let's talk about the exit to this book. Because this book ends abruptly. Um, it begins slowly. Mm-hmm. It begins like a travel will. Like any good travel you know, vacation starts with preparing. Which in this case took months. And it ends, like maybe many of our vacations do, with getting home, going upstairs, and going to sleep. <laughs> and yet, we don't even hear him say, you know, we don't even, like, we don't even get to experience seeing home with him. We experience him, like, shaking, getting lost in New York City, like, twice. <laughs> uh, first, not being able to go up to the right bridge and being told where to go, and then getting lost in his city. In his own town. In his own town. And, and and I think he says, and that's how it ends. And that's how the traveler came home again. And I would like to posit the, the theory that his story isn't, his travel isn't over still. Because part of the travel story, part of any good vacation, is having conversations about it. Mm. Um, and there is, uh, in our very first episode, um, we talked about Don Quixote, which we've brought up in this episode. And we talked about C.S. Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet mm-hmm. and a little bit about Paralandra. There was a quote I was looking for in it, I think, on that day that I couldn't find. And I just found it. And the couple of random words I read that doesn't matter that you don't understand them when you're listening to it. There's one paragraph in it in which they talk about the importance of remembering and how that is part of an experience. Here's what they say. A pleasure is full-grown only when it is remembered. You are speaking, human, as if the pleasure were one thing and the memory another. It is all one thing. The serony could say it better than I say it now, not better than I could say it in a poem. What you call remembering is the last part of the pleasure, as the craw is the last part of a poem. When you and I met, the meeting was overly short. It was nothing. Now it is growing something as we remember it. But still, we know very little about it. What it will be when I remember it as I lie down to die. What it makes in me all my days till then. That is the real meaning. The other is only the beginning of it. You say you have poets in your own world? Do they not teach you this? I have to listen to that a few more times. I am going to listen to that a few more times when I edit. 
<laughs> I think that does that reminds me and challenges me whenever I read something or experience something mm-hmm. to know that it's not over uh, in the sense I mean in, in one sense we all know this right our life is made up of moments and those moments stay with us Mm-hmm. But in this, this, this Rosa is is talking with the primary character Ransom and saying, "Hey, our meeting is still evolving." And what a beautiful thing! Mm. What a beautiful we don't we don't just talk about a book like Travels with Charlie. We interact with it. Yeah, uh, and. We're part of its living memory. And suddenly, the United States became huge beyond belief and impossible ever to cross. I wondered how in hell I'd got myself mixed up in a project that couldn't be carried out. I read. (laughs) It was like starting to write a novel. When I faced the desolate impossibility of writing 500 pages, a sick sense of failure falls on me, and I know I can never do it. This happens every time. Then gradually I write one page and then another. One day's work is all I can permit myself to contemplate and I eliminate the possibility of ever finishing. So it was now, as I looked at the bright colored projection of Monster America. The leaves of the trees about the campground were thick and heavy, no longer growing but hanging limp and waiting for the first frost to whip them with color and the second to drive them to the earth and terminate their year. (laughs) 